So this morning, we're going to rush through a few things. Um, um, we're going to be um, we're going to be continuing our series on the Gospel of Mark. That's what we've been doing over the last few weeks, a uh, few months, bringing really the reality of relevance of Jesus to us. And particularly over the next few months, as we'll hear week in week out, um, we're going to be looking at the final chapters of Mark uh, and really dealing with the death of Jesus and why this is so important to our Christian faith. Uh, and, um, and what we're about to read this morning is actually fundamental to this. We're going to be unpacking what's called the Lord's Supper. Um, and so let's, let's get straight into the text, shall we? Mark chapter 14, 22 to 31. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. Uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it. This is my body. Then he took uh, a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and, went, and, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are an amazing God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you sat with 12 men for three years, that you ate and drank with these 12 men for three years, that you poured out your life into them, poured out your teaching into them. Ultimately, you poured out your Holy Spirit into them so that these men could become men that changed world history through the gospel-shaping truth of you, Lord God. So I pray, Holy Spirit, as we unpack this, the Lord's Supper, very common to us, very familiar to us, I pray, Lord God, that we see it in light of the amazing, amazing truth that it stands for. I pray, Lord God, this morning that people will be set free through the truth of everything that it declares in Jesus' name. Amen. So three things as usual this morning, uh, that Jesus is shocking us with the Lord's Supper, uh, or the Last Supper. Firstly, the importance of his death, that's what we're going to talk about, how the uh, Lord's Supper tells us about that. Secondly, the meaning of his death, Jesus' death. And thirdly, the transforming power of his death. Um, uh, The importance, the meaning, and the transforming power of his death. So first, the importance of Jesus' death. To really get the enormity of this, we really need to understand what these guys are eating. Because they're having a meal together, right? Um, Verse 22 says, while they were eating. While they were eating what? Well, they were eating what was known in Jewish custom as the Passover meal. Some of you will know about this. What was the Passover meal? Well, 
This was an annual Jewish feast involving the retelling and remembering and celebrating, really, of the story of Moses and the liberation of the Israelites from slavery uh, in ancient Egypt. Most of you uh, will remember that story, the DreamWorks, the excellent DreamWorks uh, animation film, The Prince of Egypt, does that story very proud. Or even if you're a little bit older than that, The Ten Commandments, telling the story of how Moses meets God in a burning bush and then is commissioned by God to approach uh, probably the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, at the time, and order him to release the Israelites from his torturous captivity. And when this Pharaoh keeps saying, no way, God through Moses brings uh, plagues of increasing intensity, and finally he brings the greatest judgment of all, you'll know this story, the death of every firstborn son in Egypt. God tells Moses to let his people know that in order for the angel of death, this is the, this is the story, uh, in, uh, in order for the angel of death to pass over their houses that grim night, they would have to slay a lamb and put the, the blood of that lamb on their doorposts as a sign of their faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so as we read Exodus, you can read all of this in Exodus, that night, uh, as we read Exodus, that night as, God, uh, as God's judgment falls on everyone, the people of Israel are saved by their faith in the blood of the Lamb. And so God tells those saved to remember this story every year, year in, year out, through this meal, this special meal, the Passover meal, which Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. That's what Jesus was eating as we're reading, as we've read this passage. And so every year, that's what they did, and actually still today they do that. It was very familiar to them. It was actually very well-rehearsed ritual. In fact, it had a precise form to it as well. Uh, there'd be a presider over the feast, Jesus in this case. Uh, there were four cups of wine in the Passover meal, which the presider over the meal would talk everyone through, representing the four promises uh, made by God in Exodus 6 about rescue from Egypt, about freedom from slavery, about redemption by God's supernatural divine power, about a renewed relationship with God. This was an exciting, exciting meal. And so here we see Jesus at the third cup. And we know that because um, the fourth cup of wine, there was a singing of what's called the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 to 118, which we hear about in verse 26, actually, when it says, when they sung a hymn, then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And usually, since their very childhoods, they would, been ve they would have been very, very used to this third part of the Passover meal. And at this time, the presider of the meal would get up almost after they'd eaten most of it, and he would bless the different parts of the meal, the different elements of the meal, and tell this great story through different bits of it. And he would say things like, um, this is the bread uh, of, of our affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness, and so on, and so on. And so you can imagine their shock and amazement when Jesus, for the first time in the history of their lives, says something totally different, radical, jaw-dropping, 
unique. What did he say? Verse 22. Jesus took the bread, saying, This is my body. This is my blood. Wow! Do you go wow when you read that? Jesus is saying, look, everything that you've thanked God for in the past means this. This is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. Why? Because I'm going to lead you into the ultimate exodus. That's what Jesus is getting at. I'm going to bring you and all of humanity as they trust in me into the ultimate freedom from slavery and bondage. A lot of the songs we've been singing about this morning were about that. And not just from social and economic difficulties like Moses did uh, in, 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 in that time, but actually from your biggest, biggest, profoundest problems of all. Sin, death, and evil, as Paul talked about this morning. The things that cripple you and destroy you and mankind as you choose life before God. That's the, that's the freedom I'm going to bring. I'm the ultimate Moses, says Jesus. I'm leading the ultimate exodus. All the other deliverances, all the other sacrifices, everything else was pointing to me, Jesus. I am God come to the rescue. Wow. Astonishing. Do you feel the white hot atmosphere of expectation in the room that night when Jesus said something new? question. What do you think of Jesus? If you're not a Christian here this morning, probably very little. But hear this. Jesus here, without mincing any of his words, is being in your face crystal clear. He's saying whether you know it or not, I, Jesus, have rocked into your world and shaped it more than you could ever imagine. And if you're a thoughtful person here this morning, you should listen up. Wake up to the reality that I, Jesus, am telling you about. Because if you don't, there will be eternal consequences, serious consequences, if you choose life without Jesus. Life without him at the center of everything you do, say and think. This isn't a secondary issue. This is the primary issue of everybody's life. Do you hear what Jesus is telling you? Jesus is identifying the importance of his death. His death is the most important single event in history. And everybody in this room in Teesside, this nation and the nations need to know that. But why? Once again, Jesus elaborates at the Lord's Supper. Point two. What is Jesus' death about? What is he trying to make clear at the Passover meal? What, what are we proclaiming when we break bread together? What does it all mean? What's amazing in this story uh, of the Passover is that God, when you, when you read about it in Exodus, when God, um, uh, is, it, when God kind of brings judgment, etc., he doesn't just unleash his justice on the Egyptians only. 
does he? No, he says every firstborn son, whether you're important or not, slave or free, Pharaoh or Hebrew, whoever you are, it's coming to you. Fascinating that, isn't it? Even though we don't, God sees the sinful nature of mankind in all of us, and his justice cannot ignore that. You see, the world isn't divided into the good guys on that side and the bad guys on that side, depending on what you decide good and bad is. No, sin is determined by God, and God sees our heart. God sees the total depravity of man. A lot of people don't like that. Going way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, as they wanted to go it their own way. We don't need you, God. We want life without God. That's what sin is. The English playwright and novelist Somerset Morgan puts it like this. If I wrote down every thought I've ever thought and every deed that I've ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. And God sees that even in the Passover. And God sees that even in the Passover story. Because he's the same God. And so what he says to Moses is really something quite phenomenal and totally countercultural today. God says the only way your people will survive is if they kill a, kill a lamb and eat it that night and put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost because when justice comes by, only if you've taken shelter under, that, under the blood of the lamb is there any hope for you. In other, words, you tr- in other words, your trust in me is the only thing that will save you. Not your upbringing, not your perfect life, not your performance, not your education, not the bits of charity that you do, not who you know, not what you earn, not your morality. That's not your hope. That is not your security. Those things, although a lot of them are good, cannot save you, will not save you. In fact, in, in, in fact, in somewhere or another will eventually fail you because it always does in the end. So what's so special about this lamb? How could that little flopsy and mopsy um, save you from divine justice? What are you talking about, God? Come on, get real. And of course, And of course, without Jesus thinking like that's probably right. The lamb couldn't save you long term. The lamb was pointless unless it meant something else. The lamb without Jesus was not much to talk about. You see, Isaiah, as you read the whole sway of the Bible, Isaiah understood this. Isaiah 53, he took on our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Mouth. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. To make his life an offering for sin, he will bear their iniquities, for he bore the sin of many, and by his wounds we are healed. That's the deal. 
John the Baptist understood this as he saw Jesus, uh, as he saw Jesus approaching before he baptized him, didn't he? John 1.29, Behold, as he saw Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What's fascinating about uh, Jesus' Passover meal was that there was bread and wine. But do you know what? No main course. Have you noticed that? None of the Gospels talk about a lamb. How bizarre. The disciples were thinking, what's going on? And of course, we know the, st- we know the story. You know the story. There was no lamb on the table because the Lamb of God was at the table. Jesus was the main course. That's exactly what Isaiah and John the Baptist and Jesus was getting at. I am the suffering servant. I am the Lamb of God to which all other little lambs in the the past pointed to, to deal with the problem that haunts your soul, to clear up the mess of humanity, your life that deals with your past, your future, that breaks down the wall between you and God, uh, between you and the God you were created to worship, the God we were created for. And so as we break bread this morning, that's what we're going to be doing later on, uh, we remember that Jesus is the main cause. He's the Lamb of God. That our trust in him and only him, only him, leads us to freedom. Freedom from worry, freedom from temptation, freedom from depression, freedom from guilt, freedom from from unforgiveness, freedom from just following the crowd. That's what Jesus is saying at the Passover meal. Phenomenal. Why would you not want what Jesus promises you every day? Why do we reject this truth on a daily basis? We, Jubilee, we need God daily, like we need food, more than we need food. So practically, what does that look like? How does the gospel shape us? I'm not going to be talking long this morning, by the way. I I I want us to break bread and I want us to pray. How does he make a difference? How does his death, the trans, uh, how does his death, how is his death the transforming power in our life? Well, we come back to the meal thing again, don't we? The thing about a meal is this, and in Canada we eat lots of meals. Lots of meals. In fact, I felt my stomach doing this. You see, with a meal, you can, pile, you, can, you can pile all the food up three feet high in front of you. You can garnish it. You can cook it to perfection. You can make it absolutely delicious. You can make it look beautiful. But unless you eat it, unless you take it in, unless you digest it deep down, it doesn't do anything, does it? That's why Jesus, in our passage this morning, says, take it. And so as we come to break bread in a few moments' time, um, actually, whenever we come to break bread, I want us to briefly consider four things, four things about breaking bread that will help us make this real in our lives. So firstly, we do it in faith. 
Yeah, we do it by faith. This is not just some heartless, feelingless, go through the motions symbolic event. No way. It's reminding us that we are totally dependent on Jesus, as we said earlier, not ourselves. It's reminding us that we walk by faith and not just by sight that worries us. The gospel changes everything. It's not just about getting saved way back in 1983 but rather how the gospel is changing your marriage now, your life now, what you say, your relationships, the things in your life that God is calling you to stop doing, start doing now, how you pray, how you reach out, how you love, your life at work, at, school, at the school gate, at college, at uni. The gospel changes and continues to change Jubilee. Every single thing about us. Jesus will come through in our lives in the end. How do we know that Jesus will come through? That's the point of the meal. Because what he promises, he promises through the cross. And, what, and uh, through this blood oath, that's what he's essentially saying. Blood oaths meant a lot of things in the Old Testament. This is a blood oath that Jesus, very important, um, that he is making. He will not let us down. Verse 27 tells us, verse 27 tells us the disciples, um, uh, tells the other disciples that they'll, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 27, Jesus tells the other disciples that they'll fail him, doesn't he? Pretty radical, pretty not very nice to hear. And they tell him, no way, Jesus, we'll never do that. But we know the story, don't we? They fall asleep at his greatest hour of need. Peter denies him that night. Judas betrays him. The rest are terrified. Jesus is saying, hands down, when we break bread, this is what he's reminding us. Jesus is saying, your salvation depends not on your own commitment to me, but my commitment to you. And Jesus will come through will help us come through with him. Take, take it by faith. That's what Jesus is saying. Secondly, we, when, we, when we break bread together, we do it in community. It's really important. The Passover meal was always done as a family, historically. In fact, people find this a bit strange when they read this chapter, that Jesus is taking his disciples out of his family and doing it with them together. That was odd for a Passover meal. What, what's Jesus saying? What's Jesus getting at? Well, his message is pretty strong, actually, if you think about it. He's saying, just as you were raised with your brothers and sisters, if you were raised with brothers and sisters, for all your differences, for the fact you didn't choose them to be your brothers and sisters together, you deliberately lived life together anyway. You ate together anyway, went through thick and thin together, loved one another, were willing to sacrifice for one another, picked uh, one another up when, it, when, when the other one needed it, became closer and closer. That's what true functioning family looked like. That's what it's meant to look like. And at the Lord's Supper, Jesus is hammering home. Now the things that bring you together more than anything else now the thing that brings you together more than anything else is my broken body and blood spilt on the cross for you. 
And it's as strong, that blood-binding commitment by me is as strong as, you, as if you had been raised and as brothers and sisters together in family. One writer says this, what binds us together is not common education or common race, common income levels or common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have been loved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who now love one another for the sake of the cross. And that's what I love about being in this church. This diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-background, lots of languages, messy sometimes, yes, church. Don't you? I love it. Thirdly, we do it in response. When we break bread, we do it in response to God, the Holy Spirit. This isn't just a boring, take-your-brain-out symbolic event. If you feel that, you know what? Something's not right. We need to ask God, the Holy Spirit, as we're breaking bread, to bring this alive for us, make it real for us, bring Jesus to our attention. Jesus said in John 16, He, God the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me by taking from what, it, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you and me. Be filled with the Holy Spirit jubilee, all of you, regularly, daily. If you're not sure whether you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you know what? You're probably not. It was a great privilege in Canada, uh, at City Light actually, to pray for a lady, um, uh, to pray for a lady. And as we were talking, I could see in her eyes and voice uh, an excitement bubbling away in her that she wanted to know God the Holy Spirit as we were talking about him. Finally, she said, will you tell, very timidly, she said, will you tell me about baptism in the Spirit? And I said to her, you know what, lady, we'll do more than that. You can be filled with him right now, right here. Come on. And so as we prayed and talked through it, explained what we were going to do, I don't just, I'm not into experiences. Actually, they need to be rooted in good theology, what Jesus says. And so as we prayed for her, explained things, tears of joy and change and excitement welled up in her. And you know what? She knew. From that moment on, she knew. For the first time ever, I believe, she really knew the presence of God in her. Wonderful. I just remember reading stories like that in the old Terry Virgo books. But to be doing it there in Canada was like, wonderful. A privilege. Finally, as we break bread, and we're going to break bread in a few minutes. Finally, as we break bread, we do it with hope. Do you know what's great about the Lord's Supper? It's looking to the future too. It's preparing us for the glorious promises of God. It's a, it's a glimpse, if you like, of his eternal, joyful, jubilee story in our lives. Do you hear that jubilee? Whatever is going on in your life now, jubilee Know that you are between the lightning and the thunder, that he will make all things right. As our children's Bible, he will make all the sad things come untrue, that he is faithful and true. 
this King Jesus. Andrew Wilson, um, a Bible teacher, writes this about the great wedding supper of the Lamb. This is a picture, by the way, of, um, by Rachel Albano, wife of uh, one of the leaders out in Grace Church, uh, depic- depicting the crucifixion of Christ. And if you're an arty person, this was really helpful to me. It's not a great presentation of it, but anyhow, this is what Andrew Wilson writes about the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus is coming back for a wedding. It will be a wedding that makes ours look half-baked in comparison, where the feast will never stop, where the wine will never run out, and the dancing will never end. And you, you and I, if we're part of the church of God, will be there, but not as a guest, not even as an usher, but as the bride herself, the one who cuts the cake and appears in all the photos. So invite your friends, Jubilee. That is the hope we live for, isn't it? That is the hope that gets us through. That is the hope that catapults us into the mission of God through Jubilee Church. Are you ready for that? Are you? Let's stand. The band can come up. That would be great. We're going to break bread now, okay? Um, the band are going to play a song. But we're going to break bread, and I just feel, I just feel this morning as I was driving over, I, print, I, uh, I go through a bit of a ritual myself when I, uh, on Sunday mornings that I'm speaking, and I drive all the way to Mass, print my, uh, um, print my sermon off there, all. 30-odd pages of it, and then, um, and then drive back. And actually, that gives me time just to really reflect and think and pray, actually. And I just felt God say, I want to do business this morning. This breaking bread thing is not just a boring go-through-the-motions thing, as we've just said. I just feel God wants to break into people's lives. I feel God wants to break down. The, the, the verse that God gave me is, um, you know, get rid of all the hindrances that that stop us running our race well. Interestingly, someone shared the race this morning. I feel God wants to throw off the hindrances. And I believe there are a lot of hindrances this morning. There's a whole load of stuff going on in our lives. There's issues of, of sin. There's issues of pornography. There's issues, it's a mess out there. There's issues of uh, sexuality. There's issues of relational difficulties. There's issues of the occult in the past. There's issues of abuse in the past. There's issues of um, um, insecurity, guilt, condemnation, asylum status, worries, all sorts of things in this room. And if some, some of those things might offend you, I remember um, hearing someone do this to, on a Sunday morning and it offended me. Do you know why? The gospel offends us. That's what taking it in sometimes means. But I just believe God wants to speak to you face on and say, look, I want you to once and for all throw off those hindrances that stop you running the race well. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. Can we all gather? Can we all go 